One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today we are heading back to the late 90s, back to when Space Jam was popular, Jenkos, I think, and plenty of other cool 90s things. (laughs) So many cool 90s things. I mean, this... I think this game came out around the same time as like Pokemon Red and Blue, just to kind of put you in that frame of mind. For me, that was like first grade, maybe kindergarten era. The world was very different. We had, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, Bill Clinton in office. It was wild times. It was wild, <laughs> wild 90s. Times. Wild times. So we're talking about the RTS legend Age of Empires. So, you know, it's one of wasn't the first but i think it was the one to bring an historical context or more of like a real life vibe or history to the game that other companies saw and have built upon yeah this style of game has obviously gone on to live in many many other forms i'd say one of the most popular ones probably civilization age of empires just i remember this game being so different from the things that i was playing at the time And this was always one of those games that it was there. I didn't actually own that because my gaming PC was really just like the family PC and it wasn't equipped for gaming. But in the opportunities that I got to play Age of Empires, I mean, it was always something that stuck with me. It would happen with friends, with family. It was a game that I remember us all kind of sitting around the computer and just being in awe of the different ages passing on and seeing the cool upgrades Mm -hmm. and really just building an empire. Well, you know, it came from Ensemble Studios, which uh, with many of our past listeners may know, you know, they made Halo Wars. You know, they brought the RTS to life on the console and had been working with Microsoft, you know, until their unfortunate demise, until they kind of all separated, you know, in the late 2000s. But up until that point, I mean, they were a powerhouse in the RTS game, and uh, gave us a lot of content. Absolutely, man. Let's get into it. Age of Empires is a historical real-time strategy game developed by Ensemble Studios and published by Microsoft Studios on October 26, 1997, as the studio's first major release. In the game, the player controls a small group of hunter-gatherers as they grow their civilization and improve their technology to progress into a lasting empire throughout the distant past, starting from the Stone Age and ending with the Iron Age. Players can then choose to guide a ruthless warlike empire, steal what they need, or create great architectural wonders to achieve victory. No matter what path they choose, the player will be able to leave their mark on history with their great and powerful empire. Yeah, and this was one that... You know, you had Warcraft at the time, you had civilization that was sprouting up, but they wanted something that was a little different that allowed you to progress through these eras of humanity, you know, starting with not really knowing anything, clubs and, and, and you know, sticks, but then eventually getting up to these modern ages that, like I said, progressed in later games, but gave that architectural style and that tech tree to start. So let's give you a little breakdown about what was like the creation of Ensemble and up to, you know, up to this point of Age of Empires. In 1989, Tony Allen Goodman founded Ensemble Corporation, an information technology consulting firm based in Dallas, Texas, with friends John Book Scott, John Calhoun, and Thad Chapman. The company, quote, developed its own management and reporting software suite named Command Center, among other products, 
and quickly grew. Under Goodman's leadership, Ensemble Corporation was one of America's fastest-growing companies ranked by the Inc. 500 from 1992 through 1997, growing to more than 100 employees. The company is ranked number 339 in Inc. 500 in its final year of independence in 1997. Ensemble Corporation was then acquired on April 6, 1998 by U.S. Web Corporation. However, Goodman had started a side project that wasn't included in the deal in 1995 called Ensemble Studios. And in January 1995, while serving as CEO of Ensemble Corporation, Goodman co-founded Ensemble Studios together with his brother Rick Goodman and John Book Scott while still running his own company. Ensemble Studios was formally incorporated in February 1996, and Goodman served as CEO and art director while running the business side of both Ensemble Companies with Boog Scott. After the acquisition of Ensemble Corporation, Goodman stayed with the game-focused spinoff to pursue his passion for games. So yeah, not necessarily similar to some of the other gaming stories we've come across. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a small, little, tiny art studio, just one person with a vision, like in our Brutal Legend episode, or kind of similar to the Doom episode. This is a company that was highly rated, very profitable, had a lot of support. And he had, you know, he had stated that obviously he loved the company he had grown and this acquisition made him some moolah, but his real passion and he was figuring it out was really gaming. And he even talked with, you know, some of his employees and was like, "Listen, do you guys want to make games or data software?" And it was kind of like gave him not an ultimatum, but was like, "Listen, man, you can either go with the acquisition if you want or you can make some games." Do I have any experience with it? No, but we can do it together. Absolutely. And Tony Goodman was eager to lay out his ideas for how the group would create the game. The group would first begin work on the engine inspired by SimCity. Programmer Angelo Lawden and Goodman were able to create a very simple demo, allowing one to drive a tank and shoot at palm trees. Although it wasn't much to show, it was enough to prove that the studio was capable of creating a game. Goodman and his lead designing brother Rick would bring their friend Bruce Shelley into the studio, who was well known as the co-creator of Sid Meier's Civilization and Railroad Tycoon. While in junior high, both Goodman brothers met Shelley at a board game club in the University of Virginia while Shelley was in graduate school. It'd be over 15 years before Tony and Shelley would meet each other again, they initially spent over six months on the phone with conversations lasting for hours regarding the video game business. Shelley suspected that Tony was truly ready to start his own video game company. This was also in Shelley's favor as he had no experience coding, instead coming from a board game background. It's wild. Just one, just life. But how they like stayed <laughs> in touch throughout that with like such a different age gap with it and then kind of getting that same industry. And Shelley, coming from this board game background, is very methodic you know, thought out process with no coding. It's just, okay, here's the prototypes. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's how you play test it. It's an, it's a good mix to kind of bring together. Absolutely. Um, board games have to be really tight. The rules have to be specific. And so to mm -hmm. have that kind of vision on board is tremendously helpful. And with Shelly fully on board, the two spent months discussing numerous ideas for the game. Tony was leaning towards the idea of the game taking place on a deserted island. After countless ideas were thrown around, programmer Tim Dean suggested a game similar to the real-time strategy game Warcraft 1 and Warcraft 2. At the time, Dean had been playing just about every single PC game that had ever been released, and the studio would stay after hours to play Warcraft 2 matches with one another. The team then started looking closer at Warcraft 2 and other RTS games such as Command & Conquer for inspiration. This would lead to Shelley pitching the idea of an RTS take on Civilization. And according to Rick, quote, it was the least worst idea we had. At one point, however, a demo was developed for a spacecraft shooter with a similar isometric view that would show up in the final version of Age of Empire. So that kind of top down angled view, if you want to call it that. And so with Shelley's initial idea for the game, they would start at the end of the Ice Age. As the snow started to melt away, the settlers would start building and creating their settlement. For nine months, the studio worked on their debut game, 
which at the time was called Dawn of Man. This prototype was very rudimentary, with the player controlling a caveman that would gather resources and take them to the village. Now that the very basic mechanics of the game were laid out, it was time to design it. This process was done mostly by Rick, his childhood friend Brian Sullivan, and Shelley. Shelley was a huge believer in prototyping a game early by playing every day, designing by playing, fixing, removing, and adding as was required. This mindset was discovered during Shelley's time creating board games. It would make the development process go smoother for the Greenhorn Studios. So, as we said before, just having that experience in making a board game, mm-hmm. tremendously helpful. And to carry that over into gaming development is huge. Obviously, you know, it's programming, there's stuff behind the scenes, but having someone that's so business-minded and knowing that like, hey man, you got to constantly test everything out, whether it's an exploit, whether it's just, you know, this mechanic isn't fun. You know, you got to get rid of it or change it. And so having a veteran on board, I don't know if the game would have been even close to what it is today without Shelly. The development team would make a list of everything that Warcraft and Command and Conquer were doing right and everything that Ensemble could do to improve. From this, they were able to not only dial down on the historical theme, but also establish that the maps in the game could be randomly generated and give the player a sense of newness every time they played a match. Additionally, they wanted an AI that did not cheat during the game's matches. It had to follow the same rules as the player did. And that's huge to me. That's one Mm -hmm. of the most frustrating things in video games, in my opinion. You know, rubber banding and racing games. Anything that the computer is doing to cheat you, essentially, can can totally ruin a user experience. It is. And you and you know it. When you play a game and you know the AI cheats, whether it's like even just like a simple rubber banding, or just like how did you gather those resources that quickly? Or why do you have infinite ammo? Why do you have this? It is frustrating. So to have a balance in it, especially because this game, yeah, you could play with other, you know, people in the world. But you're mostly going to play with AIs, at least in my experience. Yeah. you got to have something that's at least fair and plays on your level with it to really balance it out. Rick did feel that trying to incorporate such a wide span of history was going to be a challenge. The team wanted to be able to have seven eras of mankind to be present in the game, starting at the Stone Age and then six of the grand technological bounds in human history. He also wanted the players to have the option to either speed through history or stay within a certain era and research the technology of the time to grant bonuses and bonus units. The bonuses and unit trees would be difficult for Rick to work on, however. During this time, Rick's tech tree was enormous, so much so that games would have taken up to five hours to play. Sullivan suggested that a game should only last an hour or so, so that the tech tree was needed to be dialed down and the seven ages were changed to four. Stone, Tool, Bronze, and Iron Ages. Halfway through development, the studio realized Microsoft was going to publish the game in Japan, but there was not anything related to Asian culture within the game. The early civilizations were only African and Middle Eastern tribe descents. A company-wide meeting was held to decide how they would implement Asian culture into the game, and eventually adding some tribes from Asia was something that had to happen. Research for these ancient civilizations in the game was not extensive. Rather, most of it was done at a local library in the children's section since they wanted to impress players with the game itself, not their historical knowledge. This meant the studio had to work within what they called Hollywood history, creating elements that were not exactly historically accurate, like Vikings with horned helmets. Since Vikings in movies were often portrayed with horned helmets, the studio tried to go along with other mainstream elements, and all of this was done to help the player learn gameplay elements. As long as the game was presented with some historical accuracy, it would be more accessible to a larger and a broader audience. I agree. I, you know, I, I think you want a game that at least you feel like you're smart and know the history of it, or at least, like you had stated, Hollywood history. It makes sense as you have seen it, and you focus more on your gameplay elements with a little LaCroix flavor of history. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a game that they were trying to use as a, a teaching tool or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was a game that they were designing for entertainment. They wanted it to be short. 
it could have taken a very different turn by being a super long, accurate five hour slug. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm glad that they decided not to do that. It made it a lot more fun, in my opinion. You got to see a little bit of that when this game came out, and I was only, uh, I was young. Mm-hmm. None of that stuff would have mattered to me anyway. It's cool now that we do have options like that in other games, but I'm I'm glad that they did it this way. Especially at the time when you're talking about 2D sprites on like a CRT monitor and, you know, you just want to kind of con- control your units and run it instead of being like, you've advanced to the Iron Age. Did you know? You know, and then have like a list paragraph of like what actually happened with it. It's like, nah, man, just give me my swords now and my armor and let's do some stuff. Yeah, man. I don't want to read it like it's a finish the fight script. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move over to the art. You know, we're bringing that up and it's actually kind of interesting the way they did it. You know, you would figure, because the sprites are, I guess, a mix of 2D, 3D in my mind, at least the way it looks. Kind of reminds me of Doom. Yeah, that's actually kind of what it was. So all of the 2D sprites in the game originally started as 3D characters. Those 3D models of the characters were made using anywhere from a 1,000 to 100,000 polygons. After being completed, they were handed off to a 3D specialist who would take them to the animation side of it and tear those characters apart, cleaning them up frame by frame in Photoshop. The quality of the characters was vastly improved when switching from 3D to 2D, so much so that when the game was presented at E3 in 1997, Ensemble's artists were receiving numerous compliments from other artists in other studios just about the quality of those little sprites and how much detail they were actually able to compress. You know, in a game that was pretty visually heavy on so many little elements on screen to actually be able to see the differences between, you know, different knights or different eras of characters from all those different nations you could play as. Yeah, because it just as easily could have ended up as looking uh, essentially a blob. Very muddy, almost. Yeah, so anywhere from 1,000 to 100,000 polygons, I mean, the, the amount of detail they put into that is great, and... Rumor is that the rejected polygons made their way into the polygon army of Super Smash Brothers 64. <laughs> that, that's exactly what it was. So there's your connection. Ensemble Nintendo, behind the scenes deals. <laughs> and so even though Rick Goodman had no experience in art, he became the unofficial art director and was in charge of the artist. Rick wanted Age of Empires to be a bright world filled with contrasting colors, since at the time, a lot of games were dark and gritty. And by doing this, it would help attract casual gamers as well as gain Microsoft as a publisher. In addition to that, the studio spent a large amount of time studying Warcraft 1 and 2 as a benchmark for what the Age of Empires multiplayer would be. Bruce Shelley described finally creating a working multiplayer as, quote, the standard to better improve the design and overall polish of the game. And I think that's really where the two tie in a lot. When you're talking about just the dedication to the art, and the dedication to the multiplayer. Because those are the, I mean, obviously the two main things that are popping off screen is can I play with others? Also, this looks so good and I can see all my individual units and it's not just some weird bitmap I'm trying to navigate with like little dots. Right. And there are certain things that you can do against an AI to manipulate them. I think having multiplayer and having the different inputs from real life people just makes everything so much tighter. Mm-hmm. So as far as playtesting the game, Tony Goodman wanted everyone working on it to be involved in other aspects of the development beyond their own department. In one instance, Goodman asked a designer what he was working on at the time. The designer told him he was designing the wheel to a cart. And when asked what the cart did, the designer replied, oh, I don't know, I'm just the artist. Tony, <laughs> Tony was not a fan of the idea that everyone was bound to their own departments. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I would do. I mean, I've been in those situations where I've worked on sets, on videos and photos, and like, what are you working on? I, I don't know. I'm just putting this thing together. I don't really know what I'm doing, but <laughs> I'm just doing it for this one thing. Yeah. With this, he established daily playtests of the game. Every day, a member of the design team would observe the playtests, and meetings were held to discuss its progress, how the studio could make the game better, things like that. These meetings were often fruitful and led to many upgrades to the game, such as the player having a shared line of sight with their allies. 
Tim Dean was the go-to programmer in the office when it came to finding aspects in the game that could exploit a match. I love you, Tim Dean. Most of oh, the t- he's looking out for us. <laughs> Most of the time, however, no one believed him when he found one of the obscure exploits, and he would have to demonstrate it to prove his point. <laughs> he's sitting there with a max army in three minutes. He's like, guys. I think I found something like, <laughs> Dean, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. I'm just doing my thing, and I've got a max army, and I won. It is sort of a natural battle I find myself in sometimes. You, wanna, you want to have the quickest, easiest way to get the armor, the, the best mm-hmm. things, and all kinds of games. I think back to Skyrim when you could just make a million iron daggers to basically yep. increase your smithing all the way, and then right away you have the best armor in the game. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are things now they do to patch that kind of stuff. I think back then it was more important that things were smooth and locked in tight before the game actually came out. I don't know that you can get away with that back then like you can now. Yeah, and, and patching back then, I mean, that was that was a major thing. It, you know, it, it wouldn't be something like, oh, we just got to patch the Iron Daggers out, we'll fix this little exploit. It's like, no, if we're patching it, that is so much workload and so much of a to-do that it better be to fix like a critical element, like if the game's just straight broken. We talked in the Doom episode about how servers at college campuses got shut down just from downloads in that game. Having Mm -hmm. a situation like that for Age of Empires, I think, would have been a a big, big deal, a big problem, so... And we do see, we see 1.0a come out. So we do see a patch come out eventually that'll address some concerns we have. And we're going to break that down as production, let's say, keeps going. <laughs> because when it came to feedback between Microsoft's QA team, there were some issues. All of the reporting was done through a shared database between Microsoft and Ensemble, yet there was not any direct communication between the studio and the testers. This meant that some bugs that should have been relatively easy to fix took longer than they needed to. And that's really it. I mean, it's, it's a line of communication when it's like you have a middleman passing these notes along when legit they could just ask the testers what, what was wrong with it. Oh, I, I got bugged out here. This froze. So what could have taken them what? Maybe like, I don't know, a day to fix. It's like a week of just passing along notes back and forth. Super common between basically any relatively large company. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, was modem connections were also something the studio overlooked when testing the game. Both Ensemble and Microsoft were testing the multiplayer on high-speed internet and powerful computers. They did not take into account that the multiplayer was mainly going to be played on dial-up internet. It was a surprise when numerous reports of issues with the multiplayer were coming into the studio post-launch. This meant that Ensemble had to release a patch for the game, something they did not plan on doing. It wasn't until the final weeks of development that the studio started utilizing automated testing. Overnight, they would run a program that pit eight AI players against one another. The next morning, they could reproduce any bugs found in the matches. Running these automated tests was something the studio regretted not doing sooner throughout the course of development. Hey, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So typically negotiations at this point in time with publishers were always drawn out. The way publishers could wait until a studio was out of money creating their game, they'd become desperate, and this would allow publishers to add in less than ideal terms to their agreements. The creation of Age of Empires didn't have any of these issues financially, but publishing the game was something that Ensemble knew they couldn't afford in the long term. Tony Goodman started looking into publishing contracts, including one with Microsoft's product unit manager, Stuart Mulder, who Goodman had previously met at the Game Developers Conference. When they met, Mulder had just presented Microsoft's interest in publishing games. After his presentation, he was swarmed by game developers pitching their games. Goodman sat in the back and acted uninterested until Mulder was on his way out the door. And at this point, Goodman casually started a conversation mentioning the development of an RTS game with Bruce Shelley. Once a demo for the game was made, Goodman would send it over to Mulder. They exchanged business cards, and they parted ways. I just picture him in the back. Everyone's, like, up front, screaming and yelling. He's got his feet kicked up, leather jacket on, (laughs) toothpick in his mouth. Like, I don't care. No big deal. I'm just making a game. It's no big deal. It's like that uh, style of picking up 
uh, someone you're interested in, like just yeah, you know, just act totally uninterested the whole yeah. time. You're like sweating bullets. Oh man, Stuart Mulder, please come my way. <laughs> please just walk down this aisle. I have strategically picked this aisle for you to walk down. Who are you, Stuart Mildew? Mm, don't know who you are. Anyway, that's I'm right. doing an RTS game. Always mess up their name. That's great business acumen. Yeah, it's great, great business things. They were like, oh, you're so important. You don't remember my name. So obviously, you know a lot of things. But I mean, it's it's the start of it, and, and, and you know, again, kind of being that first impression last helps a lot when you're not just you know part of the C crowd. Like this dude's done. Like he's obviously wiped, talked about this thing, and the guy's just like, hey, just let you know, I'm working with Shelly. You know him well. He's a big board game kind of dude. Um, also, <laughs> you know, it's an RTS. It's gonna be fun. Just, let's exchange business cards. Let's do it. And so Mulder was somewhat interested in the project especially since Shelley's involvement in the project could further solidify the game's overall legitimacy. Six months later, Goodman contacted Mulder to let him know they were ready to show him the game. Mulder traveled to Texas to see a working prototype and was captivated by it. He saw a game that did not look like anything else out there, one that looked realistic. And honestly, you know, he still had those feelings for Goodman. He's like, oh, <laughs> you remembered my name this time. Yeah. Now he starts putting on the charm. Exactly. However, most of the Microsoft executives were on board with the game, but few had their reservations, including Bill Gates. They thought the game was too complex to become a mainstream hit. And at one point, Gates wanted to market it as more of a game meant for historical learning. Because you know what I want? I want a game that is not complex and is just a history book. Me hate learn. (laughs) Although it did dig some convincing, the rest of the corporate leadership, including Gates, were eventually sold on the game. Yay. At one point, Gates would state during a corporate meeting, quote, this is a product that we will do everything we can to make a classic like Flight Simulator. So the popularity goes on and on. So at this time, a couple years prior, they had just released Flight Simulator and put a bunch of effort behind it. And we just saw a Flight Simulator, what, 2020, 2021 come out? Yep. So, I mean, obviously still a property that is well-established and Gates is like, okay, I could do one hit. Let's keep them running. And so with Big Daddy Gates' approval, Microsoft was sold on publishing the game. There was one condition, however. The Age of Empires IP would be owned by Microsoft, and in return, Ensemble would be paid higher royalties. This was an amazing deal for Ensemble, who had no experience in video games. Unfortunately, neither did Microsoft. (laughs) And with Microsoft quickly trying to establish themselves as a heavy player in the video game industry, they were quick to pick up riskier titles such as Age of Empires. There's actually uh, an interesting document I pulled uh, back in 95 when they're actually discussing this. And this was like a, um, a release before E3 or before a component they were going to. And there's only really two games that survived on that because they, they were all Microsoft this. So it was Microsoft's Age of Empires. Mm. And there was a couple other like shooters, a couple puzzle games that obviously uh, haven't made it. Rick Goodman has since stated that had Microsoft known what they were doing when signing on Age of Empires, they wouldn't have published the game because of Ensemble's lack of experience. But hey, leather jacket and toothpick, it worked. (laughs) Luckily, since Microsoft was not well-versed in publishing at the time, they were rather hands-off with the remainder of the development process for the game, how the turns have tabled. Mm -hmm. Additionally, Microsoft's consumer division did not really care about games at the time, and this meant that when Age of Empires was delayed by six months on two separate occasions, they paid little attention. Luckily, these delays were important and done to improve the multiplayer and overall polish of the game. I mean, that's like the dream contract. Here, here's uh, buckets of money. We don't really care when it comes out. We trust you that it'll be here eventually because we don't really care about games. Listen, we got Windows 95, Windows 98. Who are you to come at us with games? <laughs> Moral of the story, kids. If you just play it off like you know everything, uh, Bill Gates, Big Daddy Gates, come running. That's what I'm saying. So let's talk about finishing the game and getting it to market. During the last year of development, the studio would face serious crunch time to finish on time. For the final nine months, developers worked from 10 a.m. to midnight, Monday through Saturday, and noon to midnight on Sundays. So, you know, it's a perfect schedule. 
There was a beta held in August of 1997, but since the game was so close to being finished, there was not much to the game that could be changed in time for the release. Despite this, they still received a wealth of useful feedback. So, I mean, they're like, here's a prototype. Also, the game comes out in like a couple months, so there's not much we can really do with this info. (laughs) (laughs) And so when all that was said and done, the game was created by only 30 employees and includes over 200,000 lines of C++ code present in the final game. So, you know, a lot of people working on this. And it's always funny, especially these older games, when you hear like 30 people worked on it. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it also seems like a lot in, in just like weird hindsight. When some of the games we talk about only have like four people on it, it's like you think mm-hmm. about 30 and you think about the artists and the amount of detail, 100,000 polygons. You think about the extra 12 months that they had yeah. to make this game really work right. I mean, 30 employees did a lot of work. Yeah, but 30 employees was also, I think, pretty good for the time. Yes, especially in the 90s when, you know, gaming had been around for a minute, but not other major smaller studios that had bigger publishers, I would say. So for marketing the game, knowing that Microsoft had strong retail partnerships in Germany, France, Spain, Asia, South America, and Japan, Ensemble wanted Age of Empires to spread around the world as much as possible. With Microsoft also having a successful record of creating great marketing campaigns, They were more than willing to create a multitude of marketing for Age of Empires when asked by Ensemble. While Microsoft worked on their PR and marketing campaigns for the game, Tony Goodman worked on creating relationships with dozens of gaming magazines, speaking directly to them rather than having a community manager do so. Although he knew that the magazines would not believe him, his goal was to plant seeds in their minds to create hype for the game. After the first early reviews were published, Writers were using terms like revolutionary and phenomenal in their reviews. Other publications would follow these reviews so they didn't appear out of touch. Okay, so the backstory with that is basically Goodman would call these places up and say, hey, what's up, Gaming Magazine? Uh, I'm Tony Goodman. I'm making this game. It's phenomenal. Like, he kept, basically, he kept reiterating these words and kept, like, getting it in their mind over and over and over again. It's like, yeah, we're making this revolutionary game. It's phenomenal what we can do. And they basically interpreted those words. So he was like doing Dude. this like subliminal advertising with it. Tony Goodman is a smooth operator, man. He's kicked back. He's on the phone. He's got his toothpick and his leather jacket. And he's like, oh, he's rocking it. He is, this is, he is the font brought to life. The Wolf of Gaming Wall Street. Ooh, I like it. I like it. Coin that. Mint it. Get it minted now. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So Ensemble was not planning on demoing the game to the press, but they knew it needed to be done in order to market the game. This meant that production of the game was halted to create a demo to display for journalists. Since Ensemble did not know how to coordinate these events alongside the development of the game, the marketing itself drastically threw the schedule off course. So that's where a little of those extra months came in because they had like stop what they were doing, build out a demo version of it, and then continue them rolling, basically. Now let's talk about Let's talk about some parties. Oh, the you 90s. know Goodman's throwing rad, oh, the best parties. 90s were a wild time. <laughs> so Microsoft held several parties promoting Age of Empires. One of these notable parties was a Roman-themed toga party held at the San Jose Basketball Arena. Togas were provided by Microsoft and were a requirement to gain admittance. Microsoft was just, just a frat. 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, the 90s, when you're talking about like Bungie, like uh, Activision, all these ones that started out early. Oh, dude, it was just a frat time. I mean, I say that sarcastically, but literally they were pretty much that. There were numbered tables with an abundance of turkey legs, goblets of wine, female models posing as white statues on marble pedestals, fire jugglers, fortune tellers, gladiators, and games. At one point, a 400-pound lion accidentally escaped from its cage, simply walking around the party until being escorted back. That sounds like the nicest way to say that, where it's like, oh, excuse me, sir, uh, you're actually supposed to be over here. And he's like, oh. I'm so sorry. Yes, I will go back over there. Dude, if I saw a lion walking by me, I am out. That party is over. I'm done. Like hey. Microsoft is way too lit for me. I'm <laughs> I am out of here, Bill Gates. I'm sorry. You party way harder than I do. Billy, man. Billy, let's let's Billy, check here, man. baby. What is this? What is this? <laughs> and then he's got Goodman going, hey, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Like, you know what? I feel better now. You're right. I'm staying. And one might really say, you know put a pause on the party Ooh. so yeah the 90s were lit you know again you got justin timberlake and his sweet macaroni hair or that was all jean outfits i don't know it all blurs together it all blurs together the 90s into the early 2000s lit hit him with that sheesh it was so lit that you know i'm as hip as all of you about this (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So to promote the rise of Rome's expansion pack, Microsoft actually hosted a tournament on MSN's Gaming Zone on November 14th, 1998, all the way through December 11th, 1998. The winner was awarded a $2,000 cash prize and a trip for two to Rome, where the lions do not roam free. Actually, yeah, that's actually where you went. You actually got sacrificed to that lion at the party. That was the contract that lion signed. And you basically went to the Roman Coliseum and fought with just those $2,000. Wild, again, 90s, wild time. So some cool marketing, but let's talk about the actual gameplay. At the start of the game, Age of Empires has the player establish a small civilization consisting of hunter-gatherers. The end goal is to advance their civilization through different ages, eventually reaching the Iron Age. To achieve victory, players must gather resources so that they can buy new units, buildings, and advance their technology. They must also be mindful of what they use, as resources that are consumed are forever gone, such as cut down trees not growing back. There are four main resources in the game, food, wood, gold, and stone with each serving their own purpose in the gameplay. Each resource must be uniquely harvested, testing the player's multitasking skills on the spot. Like every other action in an RTS game, the player must give commands as processes are not automatic. A game starts with three units in a town center, with the goal of gathering resources, creating armies, and constructing buildings. The player must achieve these three goals to expand their civilization and upgrade their technology. The technology upgrade system includes crop yield, building's line of sight, unit strength, carrying capacity for workers, and much more. As the player progresses and collects more resources, they are eventually able to progress into the next age. From the Stone Age, the civilization then moves into the Tool Age, followed by the Bronze and Iron Ages. Despite using many elements of the RTS genre, Age of Empires was able to set itself apart from those other RTS games at the time due to its accurate historical setting. There are 12 ancient civilizations the player can choose from when starting the game, all of which are tied to the different kinds of technology available to utilize throughout the game. In total, there are four different single-player campaigns with specific goals for each. The Egyptians, Greeks, Babylonians, and the Yamato civilizations. There is also a game mode separate from the campaigns called Random Map. In this, a randomized map is generated at the start of each new game. Within Random Map, different game mode variations are available as well, such as Team Deathmatch, Domination, and so on. Sometimes games can last for hours as the flow is determined by the players. You know, as we said, instead of being a five-hour game, they wanted about an hour if you're kind of cruising through it. But you can, you know, if you're stalemating or you want to get all the technology or get all the resources, you can really extend the game out. Within the game, there are multiple ways to win. 
The player can attack other civilizations, play on the defensive, sneak and steal supplies, or even play completely peacefully. This is done by building a wonder, such as the pyramids or the Colosseum, and keeping it standing for 5 to 10 minutes. And within the game, there is a 40,000 word encyclopedia that provides the players with additional historical notes that discuss the rises of the different civilizations, as well as their ancient war tactics. So granted, yes, they did dumb the game down while playing it, but they do give you that back-end info if you are interested in figuring out more about it. Yeah, Billy G was like, we need this encyclopedia. We need this to teach the children's about history. So they're like, okay, Bill, we'll put in a 40,000-word encyclopedia just for you. And Bill's like, oh, I've already got one of those. Here, just use mine. (laughs) So after the success of Age of Empires, Microsoft was quick to publish the expansion pack Rise of Rome. This expansion became the most profitable game they had published at the time, instilling their belief that expansion packs are one of the best ways to generate profit. The expansion is based on the rise of the Roman Empire and adds the Roman Empire and three other playable civilizations to Age of Empires. It was officially released on October 22, 1998. Gameplay-wise, the expansion introduced numerous interface tweaks, such as unit queuing, the ability to double-click a single unit and highlight others of the same unit type, balancing damage done by catapults, and the option to increase the population limit beyond 50, but only in multiplayer games. By installing the 1.0a update from 1999, it is also possible to use the period key to cycle through idle villagers. The Rise of Rome also features a new Roman architectural design shared by all four new civilizations, the Romans, Palmyrans, Macedonians, and Carthaginians. Four new researchable technologies have been added. Additional new features include five new units, four new random map types, and a larger map size option. Pathfinding for all units is also considerably improved. New music was composed for this expansion, which replaced the original score entirely. After the last official patch by the developer, the game's community continued the support by a fan-made unofficial patch to address remaining issues and to improve compatibility with modern hardware and OSs. Yeah, so it added a lot. And a lot of this is actually used in most modern RTS games, especially the double-clicking on a single unit to select all of them around there was just so handy when you have like a mixed army and you're like, I just want to pick the archers out. Or I just want to pick the catapults and like pull them back instead of like dragging, clicking on them individually. It just all quality of life stuff that continued to improve the game and continue to improve the, the franchise and just the, the genre entirely. Absolutely, man. Because while testing your multitasking skills is fun, it can also be really frustrating when you just have to like click, you know, 5, 10, 15 random things, make them all do the same mm-hmm. thing when you could have done it all in one swoop. Yeah, it's one of those things of just so much quality of life stuff. And still, it's multitasking, but why not automate some of the multitasking, like double clicking and, you know, especially pathing, like making sure they don't get stuck on stuff or understanding that they need to avoid these areas. A lot of really great improvements came out of it. And according to Microsoft, the Rise of Rome's demo received 1 million downloads from its official website alone by April of 1999 and another 350,000 from cnetsdownload.com. Sales of the game reached 1.2 million copies by June of 2001. The Rise of Rome won Computer Games Strategy Plus's 1998 Add-On of the Year Award. The editors wrote that it, quote, added whole new campaigns, refined rules, and a fresh new gaming experience for a title that was already highly regarded. I fully agree with that. You know, they didn't really have to do this, but as they had said, you make some moolah with add-ons. But they also just added all that quality of life that made it a game that would last. So there was some cut material. The Republic Age would have taken place after the Iron Age. There was the Ice Age, which would have been before the Stone Age. There were trader, explorer, goat, and horse units. And then trade shops, workstations, and certain town center architecture. So again, kind of all those things that would have just made the game last longer or that was just kind of cut due to not really needing it right at the time. We do see some of that stuff come later, especially unit-wise and, and some of the buildings. But, dude, Six Ages would have been a lot. And when you think about it, the Ice Age, as far as the resources go, would have been really slow. And then the Republic mm-hmm. Age would have been 
a lot more um, politics and things like that that probably just wouldn't yeah. have been as fun to play. So I think these are good cuts for this game. Yeah, especially depending on you know what era they talk about the Republic Age. Are we talking about you know coming up to the 18th, 17th century, coming further than that, before that? So it really depends on when they wanted to call the Republic Age because the Iron Age, you know, you've got your knights, your bows, your catapults, all that type of stuff. So how far do they go? We do eventually see that in other games, especially Civilization, yeah. and especially other modern ones where you can get, like, advanced military or, like, future tech. But I think for Age of Empires, it was really good to start in this, like, neat little box and then expand from there. And then by the time, really, in Civilization, when you get to those modern advancements, that's kind of the point where, personally, I start losing interest in the game. I, I don't sure. find that stuff as fun, and it can become a little bit overwhelming. Although, of course, civilization matches last forever. So, Oh, dude, I have way too many hours in Civ. That's how I survived college for the most part. <laughs> Just doing my Civ matches in the back of class. Oh, man. So again, back to the multiplayer. The multiplayer mode for Age of Empires has players competing against one another to grow their empires, conquer each other's civilizations. Multiplayer could be played with up to eight players or AIs, either online or over a local area network. Or LAN. Or LAN. <laughs> Players could either go in alone or work together against other teams in a co-op mode. At the beginning of a match, players could choose between 12 civilizations and the map type from the choice of coastal, inland, highlands, islands, randoms. I just felt like it was rhyming there. I liked it. The multiplayer mode would not work flawlessly, however. It was plagued with lag issues that would delay units' response times, sometimes to the point of making games unplayable. The developers advised players experiencing this issue to go on the offensive because lag would make it impossible to respond to an attack properly. So they're basically saying, all right, you're lagging out, just attack. They can't do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's the... We've already figured out how to exploit this, so we're just going to tell you the exploit. Hey, hey, players, here's your patch. Just fight them. <laughs> you win. They also suggested players to not command their units individually because by the time they responded, the situation most likely would have changed. This issue would be fixed in the sequel, Age of Empires 2, creating a much more enjoyable multiplayer experience. Support for the game's multiplayer mode ended on June 19, 2006. However, the original multiplayer can still be accessed on services such as QQ Battlezone, Game Ranger, Voobly, and GCA. Players can also turn to the Definitive Edition, which is nearly identical to the original game's multiplayer. Let's jump over to the music and sound. What do we have going on in the beautiful soundscape of Age of Empires? The Age of Empires original soundtrack was composed by Stephen and David Rippey, with additional assistance from Kevin McMullen. David was originally a consultant for Ensemble Corporation when he was asked to be on the Age of Empires project. He would become the head composer and consultant for the game on the side while additionally doing his main consulting work for the company. With a new family and his hands full before the game, David would ask his brother Stephen to join the project. Stephen, a college student, submitted a demo and was hired to pick up and help David with the creation of the soundtrack. Development for the music was very laid back, as much of the music was written in David's apartment between Stephen's college classes. The pair wanted the game to set a mood, rather than be a focal point of the game, having music sit behind the sound effects. The only time David and Stephen wanted the player to notice the music was during a lull in the game's action due to the sound effects giving more useful information to the player than the music. However, the two still wanted each track to tell a story. For one track, dealing with early cave people, Stephen and David would go out into the woods and try and recreate sounds that a caveman would make. Stephen would joke with his colleagues about having the best job in the studio by saying, quote, We went into the woods with a bunch of microphones and made a bunch of ridiculous caveman sounds and ran around and threw rocks and broke branches and brought all this stuff back to my apartment. And we kind of made this rhythmic piece of music where we incorporated all those sounds. At the end of the day, we got it pretty close. You could tell what was going on, and you could tell we're making tools. We're stalking the lion, killing a lion, bringing it back home. And we put it in the game, and it was a complete disaster. Dude, I've said in the past, there is something about audiophiles that love to do things like this. They love to mm -hmm. put these random things 
into music and either they hide it so much in there that it's never ever going to be heard and they're going to be the only ones that know about it or yep they're going to find out that it's terrible like this was <laughs> yeah Stephen and David also wanted the soundtrack to sound as lifelike as possible without compromising the game experience the problem was that the MIDI sound cards in most PCs in the late 1990s sounded terrible so to solve this, the two wrote the music using a low-fidelity synthesizer and recorded authentic acoustic instruments when it was possible. Stephen and David also tried to use as many MIDI-period accurate instruments and musical conventions as possible within the tracks, creating a massive sound library of sound effects to use along the way. Some of these instruments included the didgeridoo, ancient flutes, dulcimer, and a lot of percussion. And if you don't know, MIDI is just, it's basically like sending a signal to a computer and the computer is sending a signal out that uh, recreates the sound of an instrument. So you can have a keyboard, plug it into your computer, and then you want that to be a trumpet. Well, now it's a trumpet and that trumpet just plays whatever note you played on the keyboard. Gotcha. So it's basically the computer's way of translating those input signals regardless of if you're recording directly from an instrument or recording from, like you said, like a keyboard or basically translating those sounds. Right. It's just an electronic message. It's not a specific note. So like in the software that we're actually recording this on right now, I could move any of those notes to a different pitch if I wanted to, to do that. It doesn't have to remain the same. And so there's just a lot more uh, computerization involved in that music process. I like it. Hashtag Derek detailed walkthroughs. <laughs> Recordings of the Boss DSS-330 synthesizer and an EMU-ESI-32 sampler were done within the program SoundForge, aided with the help of Stephen and David's brother Chris. As long as they could make the instruments sound cool, then it was good enough to work. MIDI versions of all the music were produced using the program Cakewalk, allowing the music to fit onto a CD and save memory. Overall, the game's musical texture would develop into a more lo-fi percussion and synthesizer-heavy soundtrack with a Hollywood undertone. This allowed the game to sound somewhat realistic while keeping the player from becoming bored. That's interesting. It's just interesting to see what they have to do behind the scenes. Because you listen to it, you're like, oh, I like this. Cool. Sounds good. It's like we had to go through these different channels and program it in this program and move over to here to get you these sounds. You're like, cool. Sounds good. The Age of Empires original soundtrack contains a total of 12 tracks for a total of 32 minutes and 29 seconds. Steven would lead all musical creation for the following game expansions, as well as other Age of Empires material. The soundtrack would never see an official release, so Alex can't get that vinyl until, until the definitive edition until. of the game came out. This edition of the soundtrack would release with 22 tracks for a total of 65 minutes and 8 seconds, with additional music composed by Todd Masson. I looked it up. There's no vinyl yet, but, uh, you know, I might be in the market for some uh, Hollywood, Hollywood undertones, you know? Hollywood Undead, Hollywood some Undertones. Hollywood Lo-Fi. <laughs> what I need. All right, let's break down the release versions. We have the PC, Windows Mobile, Mac, and then the Definitive Edition. So Xbox Game Studio would release a remastered version of the game that included 4K graphics, a remastered soundtrack, new zoom levels, Xbox Live multiplayer, and quality of life updates. Set to originally release in October of 2017, the game was delayed. Any pre-orders and charges made before the game was released were refunded. Additionally, anyone receiving a refund would also receive Rise of Nations Extended Edition on Windows 10 for free. Pre-order customers were also invited to a closed beta for the definitive edition. The game was eventually released February 19th, 2018. You know, not too much longer, about what, four months, three months, something like that yeah. afterwards? Yeah, not too bad. All right, so let's break it down. Let's get to the general reception. Let's see what made this game the game. <laughs> Tony Goodman would say following the game's release, quote, I remember saying to one of our employees, not too far before age shipped, well, if we ever sell a million of these things, I'll buy you a Ferrari. Because we were thinking if we could sell 100,000, we got ourselves a real business there. And uh, you know what? I'm going to have to contact 
cool guy Tony out there and see because uh, they did surpass that number. Microsoft was projecting to roughly sell around 430,000 units of the game before release. Stuart Mulder felt that this was a little too high since Microsoft at the time wasn't a big player in the gaming industry. With Age of Empires breaking the mold of RTS games, along with going against other RTS titles such as Dark Reign and Total Annihilation, he also feared low sales for the game. Ensemble only wanted to sell 100,000 copies, but Microsoft wanted to sell 500,000 copies just to simply break even. It went on to be the 10th highest selling game in 1998. And when the game sold 1 million copies, everyone at Ensemble was presented with commemorative plaques. By 2000, the game had sold over 3 million copies. And it was also popular in the German and Korean markets, being one of the top three selling games for months after its release in Germany. Age of Empires was praised by critics and fans alike, earning an 82 out of 100 on Metacritic. Many journalists were quick to compare the game to Warcraft, SimCity, and Civilization. What made it stand out, however, was the historical setting, detailed graphics, and attention to detail in the depth and layers of gameplay. One reviewer described Age of Empires as digital cocaine. It would go on to earn Game Center's 1997 Game of the Year, the 1998 AIAS Computer Strategy Game of the Year Award, and the Gold Award from the Verbund der Unterhagen Software in Deutschland. <laughs> A little, little glitch <laughs> going on there. So, uh, you know, I just absolutely, reading. totally nailed that i nailed no it. that's that's right i i believe our german fans out there are going yeah <laughs> yeah that's is good Unterhunting software deutschland yeah yep that's exactly Unterhunting software perfect after the game was shipped to production ensemble held a party to celebrate the release of their game the work was not done however as they did not expect the amount of reports they would receive regarding bugs this would lead to that 1.0a patch not too long after release. So luckily they weren't parting with lions this time. They were just like, yeah, everything's good. Oh, what are those reports coming in? <laughs> Uh-oh, <laughs> got to get to that. These were the days of Bill Gates doing the photo shoots, you know, spread out across his desk. This was risky Bill Gates time. And I think he started to learn oh, yeah. his lessons after that line got out. Risky Billness, as some might say. Age of Empires would go on to inspire many people around the world. In 2001, nine-year-old Ryan Tyak was spending arguably too much time playing Age of Empires. His mother started suggesting that he should take up a sport and meet people. He started practicing archery since Age of Empires had archers. In 2006, he won a gold medal at the Junior World Outdoor Target Championships and competed in the 2016 Olympics. Surgeon Syed Frohi played Age of Empires and Halo while he was in medical school and credits the game for making him a better surgeon, improving his manual dexterity, sharpening reaction time, and training him to focus on certain tasks. See? Video games are good. Now, uh, flip side of that, my cousins that I used to play Age of Empires and Halo with all the time, once, mm -hmm. once one of them went to college for, uh, to become a pharmacist, he had to give up gaming forever because he started failing college because of how addicting games like Halo and Age of Empires were. So it can go both ways, but I'm glad for you, Surgeon Syed Faraki. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys had some good <laughs> out of this. So to wrap it up, Age of Empires started out as a side project with seemingly unlimited funding. Although Microsoft's push helped elevate the game to AAA status, it was the sheer amount of work done at Ensemble Studios that made the game an overnight success. Since then, several more mainline games and spinoffs have been created from their first entry into the series, most notably, the thousands and thousands of hours Alex put into Age of Mythology. <laughs> the impact that the game has had on later RTS titles is nothing short of abundant. Age of Empires is truly a staple video game and a grand influencer of the RTS genre. Its historically tied world and tedious gameplay has made it arguably one of the greatest games to spawn from those late and great 1990s. Yeah. Yeah, and so that is our wrap-up of Age of Empires, as always. Derek, start us off. What did you think, and what would you rate this RTS? I really like this game a lot. I had to remember, I think, Civ 2 
um, that came out a little mm-hmm. bit before Age of Empires did. And just if you go and if you haven't played Civ 2, I'm sure to a lot of people, the things that we're saying in, in this episode just sound like things that it should exist and have been improved upon. And Civ, I think, does every... I think it's the best in this genre of games right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Age of Empires came out, I, I don't think that the graphical element can really be overstated. Like, if you go and look at the Civ 2 screenshots... Age of Empires is so much better. Just so much better, in my opinion. And I have a lot of nostalgia for this game as well. Just huddled around the computer with my cousins, with my family, Mm -hmm. having a ton of fun playing this game and and sort of doing something that that was different. Obviously, when you're all huddled around, you, (laughs) you can't all play at the same time if you've just got the one computer. But still, just a lot of fun and something that was really different. I'm going to give this game a 7 out of 10 because I think that its replayability now uh, with the improvements just in the genre make Mm -hmm. it something that I'm probably never going to go back and, and try and play now. But I love the simplicity at the time. It was simple enough yet detailed enough to where you didn't get bored of it. You could play multiple matches over and over and over again and still feel like you were getting new experiences in the game. And I just, I can't overstate the amount of influence that this game obviously had just on the genre. And I I think a seven in 2021 is pretty fair. Yeah, and, and to reiterate that point of, you know, having those random maps where you could play over and over and over again, the resources are separated different, you have different starting zones, you may start, you know, in the north, the south, or wherever it is with that, I think that improved a lot in the times, and especially civilization, which is so much more of just like, you move these grouped units that have a set health, and it's more just like a turn-based type thing, whereas Age of Empires was like real-time with that real-time strategy stuff, and would allow you to like move units here, do this, do this, do this, while still having those timed upgrades. You know, it definitely changed that up. So fully agree on those. And obviously I'm a huge, huge, huge RTS fan. And again, I I played way more hours of Age of Mythology than I did Empires because I figured I can have mana cores and frost giants and Valkyrie. I'm going to go that way. And uh, that's where I picked up a lot of my mythology as well. You know, they had, you know, your, your Greeks, your Romans, your Egyptians, uh, and it was just really cool to see all of those and know the gods, know the demigods, know the you know multitude of mythology behind it. Really cool. So the whole series as a whole to me is amazing. And just like a great logical step too. We talk about Age of Empires and how they never really wanted to be historically accurate all that much. And mm-hmm. so going into something like that where it is mythology and sort of incorporating that into the same game, I think is just a great natural step of progression. Yeah, it made so much sense. So if I had to give this a rating, I'd start it out on the positive side where you, I personally would just build a bunch of walls because walls keep them enemies out. Also the turrets and cool stuff like that. <laughs> uh, multiply it by collecting all the resources because I am obsessive when it comes to collecting stuff. Subtract out not having the 400-pound lion in the game, just in a real-life sense, um, pretty silly. Might have even been Tony the Tiger. We don't know for certain. Um, might have been legitimately a tiger who named Tony was there, but who knows. Um, take out that we don't know the exact age of these empires. They just have names associated with them, so I wasn't sure if we're talking about, you know... A 25-year-old empire, just cool, wearing a leather jacket, or like a, a wise, you know, 70-year-old empire. We just don't know. We just know that they have ages. <laughs> and I would put all of that mm, out of a bronze sword mixed with stones around it with cool iron fisticuffs out of age 10 (laughs) (laughs) exactly all right i like it research for this episode was done by alex kendall 
Derek Baker, Evan Barr, and Richard Scanlon. And the intro and outro music for this episode was composed and written by Evan Barr. And as always, we want to thank those people who've been supporting us. Thank our patrons today. If you haven't, check out our Patreon. We've got some new updates on it. Looking really cool. Uh, get yourself shirt, posters, behind the scenes, extra episodes, bonus episodes, plenty of other content that we have on there that we don't have elsewhere. Uh, so definitely check that out if you haven't. And let's thank those patrons today. We have Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Cowan Fong Feliciano, Alex Harper, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Richard Scanlon, Mick Chief, Big Papa Semechki, Climbing Spork, Mr.1898, William Kroll, Cameron Collier, and Mr. Toot. So thank you guys again for the support. And if you haven't, please check it out. And if you haven't as well, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Also, join our Discord. It's free to join. Alex and I hang out in there all the time, have a lot of fun. It's a great community, and we'd love to see you there. And as always, catch us over on Twitch TV, over at twitch.tv slash Sourman70, where we play a bunch of the games that you guys want to play, playing with our community, doing our community game nights, and plenty of others. And if you haven't or don't know where to find these links, Check them out in the podcast description on Instagram or on Twitter. We have a link in bio and that will direct you where you need to go. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening platform. Please leave us a review. It helps us out a lot. It's great feedback and we want to hear from you. Yeah. And to wrap this up, if you haven't already, send it to us on social, send us to on Discord. What games do you want to hear about? What games have had interesting development stories, interesting production stories, or, you know, are just some things that you want to know. Send it our way. We'll make sure to give you credit in the episode for it. And I uh, really appreciate you guys out there. And with that, as always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And this is Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. <laughs>